Brothers and sisters, if you will, turn with me in your Bibles now to Numbers chapter 21. Book of Numbers chapter 21. I encourage you to take out a Bible at your home and look at it with me in your own copy of Scripture. I think that'll be the best way that we can interact with this together. Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 through 9. Today we're going to look at the bronze serpent. This unique story in the Old Testament. The bronze serpent. Look and live is the title of the message today. And you'll see what I mean here in just a moment as we come to our text. Now, before we read it, I want to, again, reorient ourselves. Where, where are we at in this book of Numbers? It's important for us to constantly be reorienting ourselves as to what's going on in the story. Now, at this point in the book of Numbers, if you've followed along with us through this wilderness journey, at this point in the book of Numbers, chapter 21, most commentators believe at this point it's been close to 40 years that they've been wandering in the wilderness. We're almost up to that point that the people are ready once again to try to go into the promised land by the grace and power of God. Remember, back in Numbers 13 and 14, God sentenced them to 40 years of wandering in the wilderness because they would not believe him. They would not take him at his word and act in faith. Well, in the the course of what we've studied over the last few weeks... There has been about 40 years of wandering in the wilderness for these Israelites. It might seem like we've been in the book of Numbers for a long time, right? It might seem like we've been in the wilderness for a long time, but we've really flown through this book of Numbers, and you don't really get a sense of how much time has elapsed in the story, but it's been almost 40 years here in our text since chapters 13 and 14. And so we're starting to see the transition from the first generation to the second. We're starting to see that transition, that first generation that God said would die out in the wilderness in their 40 years wandering, and the second generation that God will eventually bring into the promised land. And in some ways, this new generation is different from their ancestors. In some ways they are different, but in some ways they are exactly the same. In some ways, they're exactly the same. Let me show you what I mean. Numbers chapter 21, let's start at verse 4. There we read, From Mount Hor they sent out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. And so Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. This is God's word. Now, does this sound familiar? Does this sound like the refrain from the book of Numbers that has been droning on and on and on? The people grumble and complain. Yet again, they grumble and complain against Moses and against the Lord. They say the same types of things here. And what this is telling us is, since this is a, almost a generation removed 
from that group that was grumbling and complaining back in chapters 13 and 14, it tells us this is the human condition, right? This is the human condition, which is why we can see ourselves in these Israelites time and time again, even though we are about 3,500 years removed from what happens in the book of Numbers. This is about 3,500 years ago, and yet we can see ourselves over and over again because this is the human condition we're seeing in the Israelites here. Now, did you notice how they complained? Did you notice that, how they complained? Look back one more time at verse 5. Notice how they say, there is no food, and then later they say, we loathe this food. Right? They say there's no food, and then they say, we loathe this worthless food. Now, have you ever done that? Have you ever exaggerated how bad things were when you were complaining to kind of strengthen your case in the way that you were complaining to make things sound like they were really worse than they actually were? God has been miraculously feeding these people. And yet they say, there's no food. There's no food. And then, you know, they come to the food that there actually is. And they say, we, we loathe this stuff. We loathe the food that there is. You see, we, we see ourselves in the Israelites But this morning, our text is not primarily about the Israelites. Our text today, and what I want you to see today, it's primarily about God. I want to focus on God this morning. Two points specifically about God from our text that I want us to take away. Number one, we're going to look at God's use of the snakes, the poisonous snakes that he sent among the Israelites. And we're going to use that as a way to think about How does God use things today like plagues or sickness or death? How does he use those today for his own purposes? And so first, God's use of the snakes. And second, God's use of the bronze serpent. God's use of the bronze serpent to save the people. First, God's use of the snakes. And like I said, we're going to use this as a way to think about God and how he acts toward the world today. How does God use things like plagues or sickness or death to accomplish his purposes today. Look back with me in our text at verse 6 one more time. Verse 6. It says, Then the Lord sent fiery serpents, might be also translated poisonous serpents, among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. So as the people complain yet again to the Lord, God sends this to them. God sends these poisonous snakes in to bite the people, and it causes the death of many of the Israelites. Now, I want you to think about God with me for a second. And I want you to think about God's activity in the world today. You know, sometimes we can only learn the lessons that we ought to learn in lesser petty trials by suffering greater ones. Let me say that again. Sometimes we can only learn the lessons we should have learned in lesser petty trials by God putting us through suffering in greater trials. And that's what he's doing here. Now, as we think about God and his activity today, don't think for a moment that God doesn't discipline his people or punish the wicked with sickness and death. Don't think for a moment that God does not do that today. He does. Now, I'm not saying, hear me on this, I'm not saying that we can be sure that that's what's happening with this COVID-19 outbreak. Okay, we cannot be sure that that's what God is doing. God's ways are higher than our ways. We, we hardly ever know why God is doing something. And even if we have a good educated guess, it might be only one reason of the, the hundreds that God is doing something. 
But I will say this, we certainly cannot rule it out. We certainly cannot rule it out that God might be using this outbreak in a similar fashion to the snakes, the fiery serpents that he was using here. I've heard lots of people over the last couple weeks and months say something to the effect of, well, God doesn't cause sickness. God would never bring anything like this on his people. And brothers and sisters, that's simply not biblical. That's not what we see in Scripture. God sometimes will send a plague or a sickness or even death to do one of three things, or perhaps three things altogether. God will use those things to punish the wicked, to discipline his children whom he loves, or to provide a warning to others. And sometimes he's doing all three at the same time. Punishing the wicked, disciplining his children, providing a warning to others. Okay? Now, you shouldn't live in constant fear of what the Lord is going to do to you. Okay? Having said all of this, we should not live in constant fear of what the Lord might do to us. Especially if you are one of God's children this morning. If you've given your life over to God's Son, Jesus Christ. You are God's child. And so you don't need to live in constant fear and cowering over what the Lord might do. Sure, there is an appropriate fear and awe and respect for the power and the glory of the Lord and his sovereign control over the earth. And yes, God's enemies do have something very specific to fear in being on the wrong side of the most powerful being in the universe. But we should not constantly walk around, especially if we are God's children, we should not walk around in constant fear. Think about Exodus chapter 34. Moses is up on Mount Sinai with God by himself. And Moses asks God, he says, God, would you show me your glory? And God says, uh, if, if you saw it, you would explode. Okay, you can't see me and live in my complete glory. But I'll show you a piece of it. It's essentially what God says. And so God hides Moses in a cleft of the rock, he says. God passes by and God says, Moses, I'm going to proclaim my name when I pass by you. And that's going to be one of the ways that you experience my glory. I'm going to proclaim my name and I'm going to tell you about myself. Now, Exodus 34, 6 through 7, you need to know this. It's one of the most foundational passages in the entire Bible because God is describing himself to us. God is telling us, in his own words, who he is. And so what does God say about himself when he describes himself, when he proclaims his name and his glory? He says this. He says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, and forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And so the reason that I point this out to you is because the overwhelming picture in the Bible of God's disposition toward his children is one of compassion and love and tender care. That's the overwhelming picture of God's disposition toward his children in the Bible, even in the Old Testament. Okay? And so we do not need to constantly be walking around cowering in fear. Jesus in the New Testament tells us he is gentle and lowly in heart. It says in the book of Matthew, a bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. But, but, we cannot let this lead us to the unbiblical conclusion that God would never use sickness or death as a means to discipline his children or to punish the wicked. 
There are dozens of times in Scripture where God sends a sickness or a pestilence upon people. And it is not simply that he allows it. No, he actively causes it. Dozens of times in Scripture. And unless you make the argument, some people will say, well, that's the Old Testament God, right? That's, that's the Old Testament God. And the New Testament God, the way God interacts in the New Covenant with his people is not like that. Well, read Acts chapter 5 with Ananias and Sapphira. Read Acts chapter 12 with King Herod. Read 1 Corinthians eleven twenty nine through 30 where people are getting sick and some have died because of the inappropriate way they were taking the Lord's Supper. And so don't box God in and say he would never do that. He has, and he does. But also, don't claim to know that's what God is doing. Right? It's important for us to not go so far as to say God would never use those things, but also not go so far as to know, to claim to, that we know God is doing that right here, right now. You see, every time a natural disaster hits, you will always find someone on the 700 Club or some prominent Christian coming out and saying, this is God punishing sinful people for their sin. And it, it takes a lot of arrogance to say you know that that's what God is doing. We can't rule it out necessarily, but in Luke chapter 13, starting in verse 1, Jesus actually tells us that sometimes disasters take place and sometimes disasters take the lives of people. But those people who die in those disasters are no worse sinners than the people who are spared. Jesus talks about this in Luke chapter 13, the first few verses of that chapter. And so, having said all of that, the first lesson here from our text which is especially pertinent today with what we are going through, is don't put God in a box and say he never causes sickness or death to wake people up or to bring people to himself. God has done that. God does do that. So don't put God in a box and say he never does that. God could very well be doing that right now. We don't know for sure, but we can't rule it out. Right. Now, second, I'd like to look at God's use of the bronze serpent. We, we already examined his use of the, the poisonous snakes that he sent among the people. What about God's use of the bronze serpent to save people? Well, two points here. Number one, God uses the bronze serpent. In our text, Numbers 21, he uses the bronze serpent to point us forward to Jesus. God uses this bronze serpent here to point us forward to Jesus. Now, you might be thinking, well, John... Perhaps is this kind of a stretch? I mean, last week in Numbers 20, the rock represented Christ, and now this snake represents Christ. I mean, are, are we trying too hard to find something in the text that's not really there? Well, actually, Jesus himself tells us this in John chapter 3. Jesus tells us this in John chapter 3. Remember John 3, Jesus is having a conversation at night with Nicodemus, one of the religious leaders of the day. And right before that great statement of salvation in John 3.16, Jesus says this in John 3.14. It says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. John 3.14-15. Jesus is saying, The serpent in the wilderness, the bronze serpent, was a foreshadowing of Jesus and the cross, him being lifted up. It's meant to point us to Jesus' death on the cross. I hope you're starting to see, as we go through numbers, I hope you're starting to see, you can find shadows of Christ all over the Old Testament. 
pointing forward to the reality that would eventually come. You can find this all over the Old Testament. You can find it all over the often neglected book of Numbers, shadows of Jesus Christ, types or pointers to Jesus Christ, all over the Old Testament. The Old Testament is not some irrelevant text to be discarded. Now that we're in the New Covenant, we only read the New Testament. No, the, the Old Testament has gold, gold in it for you and for your soul, if you will but go to it and dig for it. So God did it this way on purpose. Jesus himself says so. And so let's go back to the bronze serpent for a second. Let's see how God is pointing to Jesus. Now, in our text, did you notice, all they had to do was look at it. That's all they had to do. Like, really? That, that's all? We, we just look at the serpent and all of a sudden we're not going to die? Yes. That's all. It was that simple. It really was. And just as it was simple then, it's simple now. Just as it was simple then, it's simple now. In fact, the simplicity of the gospel, the free offer of God's grace, is actually a stumbling block to some people. Do you know that? The simplicity of the gospel, how simple it is, or the, the, the fact that God's grace is freely given to anyone who, who would come to Christ, it's actually a stumbling block to some people today. They think, well, surely there, there must be more you have to do. Surely salvation depends on who's good, right? Surely you have to be good enough to earn entrance into heaven, surely, right? And, and so people look at the simplicity of the gospel and the gift of God's grace and think it's, it's foolishness. Think about a child. Think about it like this. Think about a child who grew up in an orphanage all her life. And all she's ever known is hard labor supervised by mean-spirited adults. Anytime she makes even the smallest mistake, they come down hard on her. She gets unfairly punished. She gets verbally abused regularly. And all of a sudden, a wonderful couple adopts this child. And they bring her home. And they love her. But at first, all she can do is try to work hard to please them. To try to buy their love with her obedience or her hard work. Every time she makes a mistake, she cowers in fear. Every time they give her food or loving affection, her first instinct is to suspect them of having different motives. Until slowly she starts to realize, this is love. That they love me. They give to me freely because they love me. No strings attached. Unconditional love. And it melts her heart. You see, that little girl, she, she had a hard time accepting their free, unconditional love at first. And many today have a hard time accepting the free grace of God. It's, it's free, and many today have a hard time accepting that. All you have to do is look to Christ and live. That's it. It's simple. Look to Christ and live. Be saved. In 2 Kings 5, a similar thing happened. In 2 Kings 5, there's this rich, powerful army ruler, Naaman. And Naaman had leprosy. And he goes to Elisha, the prophet, for healing. And Elisha tells him, go wash in the Jordan River and your leprosy will be healed. And initially, Naaman can't believe it. Naaman says, no, wait a second, that can't be right. That's too simple. No, that, there, there needs to be something bigger, something harder, something more important to heal me of leprosy, surely. It, it was just that simple. All he had to do was a simple thing. 
to receive the grace of God. 1 Corinthians 1, Paul talks about how the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. The message of the cross is foolishness to a lot of people. We're going to be saved just by grace through faith, by believing in this this guy who died on a cross 2,000 years ago? Really? That's that's the salvation of, of eternity? It's that simple, but it's a stumbling block to people. And so ask yourself a few questions this morning. Number one, ask yourself, will you take the Lord at his word through faith? Will you take the Lord at his word through faith? You see, in Numbers, the previous generation would not take the Lord at his word. They refused to have faith. Back in Numbers 13 and 14, they refused to believe the word of the Lord, that he was going to give their enemies into their hands. And so they refused to take the Lord at his word. And here in Numbers 21, it makes no logical sense at all. You just look at the bronze serpent and those poisonous snakes, that they won't harm me? I just look at that thing? It makes no logical sense, but we have to take God at his word. Will you take the Lord at his word through faith this morning? Second question, ask yourself this. Will you let what is happening right now here below cause you to look up? Will you let what is happening right now in our world, in this moment, this historic moment, here below, cause you to look up? You see, the serpents were attacking on the ground, but if the Israelites just looked up, they could live. Now, do you think, do you think God is trying to get our attention right now in this historic moment? And, and how sad is it to think that there will be many people who refuse to look up at God and instead stubbornly keep their focus on what is here below. Do not set your focus on earthly things. Set your minds on things above, Colossians 3. Will you let what is going on right now in our culture, in our world, cause you to look up? To look up. And third, will you look to Jesus and live? Ask yourself, will you look to Jesus and live this morning? If they looked to the serpent, they would be saved. Today, if you turn to Jesus, if you look to Jesus, you too can live. You too can be saved. Will you look to Jesus and live? Or will you refuse to look? And then fall victim to that ancient serpent, Satan. Now that's the very first way God is using the serpent. He's using it to point us to Jesus. But I told you there was a second way. God is also using the serpent in a second way, and this will be shorter than the last point. But God uses the bronze serpent to save the people from his own wrath. This is important. I want to explain what I mean here. God is using the bronze serpent to save the people from his own wrath. God's grace is absolutely amazing, you guys. Absolutely amazing when you look at it and keep looking at it and turn it over like a diamond with multifacets. God's grace is absolutely amazing. See what's going on here. God is the one who sends the snakes, right? God is the one who sent the snakes. He's the one who is punishing the people. And God is the one who provides the way for them to be saved from it. God is saving them from his own wrath. See the glory of God here. Let this lead you to worship. God is saving them from his own wrath. And you see this theme throughout Scripture over and over again. 
For instance, in Hosea chapter 6, that little minor prophet book of Hosea chapter 6 verse 1, it says, Come, let us return to the Lord, for He has torn us that He may heal us. He has struck us down and He will bind us up. God is saving the Israelites from His own wrath. And the same is true at the cross. The same is true at the cross. Here in Numbers chapter 21, we see God's justice and God's holiness and God's wrath. And we see God's mercy and God's care and God's compassion and His love. And at the cross, we see the same thing together, even more perfectly. At the cross, God saves us from God. That's what's happening at the cross. God is saving us from God. At the cross, God did not primarily save us from Satan. And at the cross, God did not primarily save us from ourselves. He saved us from His own wrath. He saves us from His own wrath. The greatest problem human beings have is the wrath of God that is owed them because of their sin. That's the greatest problem that we have. The greatest problem every generation has. Every human being. Our greatest problem is the wrath of God that He owes us because of our sin. And God knows this. And God in His love and compassion and in His genius provides a solution. And the solution He provides is His only Son. The solution God provides is His only Son. He pours out the wrath that should have come to us on His only Son. In Romans chapter 3, verse 25, we read this. Talking about Jesus, Paul says, God put Jesus forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Propitiation. It's a long, weird word that we don't use in our everyday vocab today. But it's a powerful word. Propitiation means a sacrifice that turns away wrath. A sacrifice that turns away wrath. And so God offered up Christ as the sacrifice that would turn away his wrath. Jesus is like a lightning rod sitting on the top of a tall building. That when the lightning comes down and it's going for something, the lightning rod turns it away and takes the lightning upon itself so that it won't hit its intended object. Jesus is the lightning rod. He is the propitiation. He is the sacrifice that turns God's wrath away from where it should have been going. Jesus and his death on the cross is the solution that God himself provides to save us from his own wrath. God provides the solution to save us from the problem that comes straight from him initially. God saves us from God. That's what I I want to leave us with from Numbers chapter 21 this morning. God saves us from God. It's, It's God from first to last. It's God from beginning to end. The gospel is God centered. God is saving us. God is providing. The the propitiation, the solution to the problem. The problem lies within God. It's His own wrath. And God is the one who takes care of it. And God is the one who takes the initiative and invites you to come and says, The sacrifice has already been made. Will you accept it? Will you take it? Will you put your faith and your trust in Jesus? Will you look to Him and live? It's all you have to do. 
Put your faith and your trust in Jesus. Turn from your sin. Give your life to him. You can do that today. You can do that this week. I always say this, but if there's anybody out there who wants to give their life to Christ this week, don't let the the shutdown keep you from doing that. Contact us. Let us know. Come get baptized in these waters. Come give your life to Jesus and be saved. Don't wait before it's too late. Numbers chapter 21. What a blessing that is, at least to me and my soul, this morning.